0: money fm 89.3 best of your money money and me on your money only on money fm 89.3 this segment is brought to you by raffles health insurance It is indeed. Good morning. We look at the implications of Russia and Ukraine that matter to investors. I'm Michelle Martin. Should an all-out invasion of Ukraine by Russia heighten, could spikes in energy prices and knock-on economic effects spell trouble for the pocketbooks of ordinary investors? And what would it mean for central bank policies? We're seeing already a number of major central banks beginning the process of tightening monetary policy in an attempt to combat record-high inflation. But spikes in oil and natural gas prices could exacerbate the issue further. So will it force central banks to accelerate their pace of tightening? Next, we'll take a look amidst all the geopolitical tensions, which safe haven assets could benefit? And we'll take a look at the impact of the geopolitical uh, fallout on Asia-Pacific markets. All that coming your way this morning. We're very fortunate to have with us Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow, helping us understand what's on investors' minds this morning. Good morning, Arun.
1: Good morning, Michelle. So...
0: Could the outlook, particularly for the Federal Reserve rate hikes after March, become perhaps less clear if Russia does continue its incursion into Ukraine? I mean, could the Fed have to move more quickly to tame inflation?
1: I mean, as of right now, I think it's, uh, I, I personally don't feel the Fed is going to make any changes to their plan based on where things stand geopolitically at present. I mean, contrary to popular opinion, you know, the Fed really doesn't, Decide interest rates or change them around based on the market moves going up or down like five or ten percent or maybe even like twenty percent right it 's completely unrelated. There's two factors primarily is what they 're looking at unemployment and inflation, unemployment, record lows, inflation, basically record highs that status quo would mean the Fed would keep their in, the interest rate hiking plan set up as it is for the rest of the year, obviously. You know, if it turns, if this incursion turns out into a full-blown crisis where you got to throw it like China in the mix and it becomes the West versus Russia plus China and all sorts of stuff, which I personally think that the odds of that happening is minuscule.
0: Mm.
1: Uh, I think it's going to be like status quo. They'll keep increasing interest rates. They have to do that. They have no other choice. Inflation is running rampant. If anything, as you mentioned in the beginning, you know oil prices are going through the roof right now. Mm. It has to be tamed. And that's you know a follow-on uh, effect on uh, many price increases of other goods.
0: So the Fed had planned to make incremental rate hikes during each of its remaining seven meetings this year. You don't think that Russia, being a major global producer of oil, if we do see an escalation, if sanctions or strife put a crimp on uh, Russia's spigot of oil to the world, and that having an impact on oil prices, that that could complicate the picture for the Fed in any way?
1: I mean, it goes both ways, right? On the one hand, sure, oil might increase even further, but if the sanctions are that deep and steep, and that leads to a relative, uh, you know, a larger fear in uh, corporate's minds to do spending, etc., and thereby it leads to a slowdown in economic growth of the country. Hmm the Fed does have a little bit of leeway. So from that aspect, I mean, unless something really extreme happens on either side, like either one of these oil super hikes, you know, it going up to like over $200, which I think is, again, very low probability of that happening, or an all-out war between the West and Russia versus China, it it seems like based on current inflation numbers, based on current unemployment numbers, a relatively slow and steady increase in interest rates. Maybe even the first one might be 50 basis points, not necessarily 25. Mm-hmm. But I think that's going to be a tough sell in this market, where you know there is a threat of war. So I think the simplest and easiest path is for the Fed to stick to exactly what they said in the past. You know, steady increase of interest rates all the way up for the next year or two. Uh, try to have a more normalized monetary and fiscal policy. Heal down the balance sheet of the Fed, especially so that they actually have some dry powder or ammunition in case something crazy does happen, right? So when your interest rates are already basically zero and your balance sheet is already at like $16 trillion, mm-hmm. there is a question about how much more room there is for what the Fed can do. And sure, they'll always say that, yes, you know, the Fed is always can be there, there'll be a Fed put, etc., which is true to some extent. But from a more conservative uh, point of view, it does make sense to take this opportunity, start increasing interest rates slowly but steadily, and then let's reassess the situation in maybe six months or nine months, right?
0: Right. In the meantime, speaking of balance sheets, uh, there are companies that uh, face geopolitical risks from Russia and Ukraine that should be on our stocks to watch list. For example, JP Morgan has a list and, you know, they, they, they're firmly, they have conviction in the energy sector, of course, as their top pick. So they say EOG resources, Pioneer Natural Resources, uh, integrated giant Exxon, um, that material companies could also see an upside. Metal companies could stand to gain uh, amid price gains in raw materials. Materials. And on the flip side, of course, um, companies with exposure directly to the region, like uh, airlines, Boeing, Arconic, Linda, that these names could be negatively impacted. I'm wondering what's on your mind when you think of companies that could benefit or lose, given the geopolitical tensions that we're seeing now?
1: Right. I mean, you know, energy obviously uh should come across as a big win out of this but this is a sector that uh, i've been quite bullish on from a while ago uh, on the back of i think the industry and the sector as a whole has been very heavily like under capital invested uh given on the back of all of this esg teams etc mm-hmm. and at the end of the day you know the world still needs oil, right like renewable energy is has not at least for the next like three to five years is not going to be able to take up that big chunk of what oil uh, and other uh, fossil fuels are currently producing the energy that they are producing so I think that's a sector that's definitely been beaten down so much and even after the recent price appreciation, I still think there's quite a bit of value in there and this Is not just like, you know, the big integrated giants like, you know, your Exxon or Chevron or uh, et cetera, Mm. but also in terms of energy transportation, I feel, Uh, be it in the pipeline space, be it on product tankers or oil tankers. I think especially the latter has been beaten down so much, obviously, on the back of, you know, daily charter rates being at record lows. I do feel that there's a big pocket of uh, opportunity in that section. Now that's on the pro, on the you know bullish side. Okay. On the negative side, uh, not just because of this Ukraine crisis, but just the overall what's been happening, be it the Fed increasing interest rates, and for that matter, I think a lot of investor psychology. Once you have this huge run up over the past couple of years, the place where you take capital out the first are your winners, right? And there's been no better winner than the tech segment since march of 2020 basically where you've seen all these stocks go up like five times eight times ten times uh from that price point so and we've already started seeing that over the past couple of months and there, i say i think there's still a decent r- runway to go for that price correction to take place because valuations are still i mean they're getting into more attractive territories but it's very easy given the fact that these Prices overshot value by or the underlying business fundamentals, at least in my opinion, by so much on the runway up. When people start running out, that you know that single exit, prices tend to overshoot the other way. So mm. I still don't think it's that right moment to start getting into technology just yet. But uh, it seems a lot of more interesting price dynamics take place. E Facebook, uh, you know, a couple of other larger names be it in the West, but I would say more so in the in in Asia, especially in China, you know, Xiaomi, Tencent, Alibaba, I think they're coming to be very attractive levels right now. So that's the kind of two segments of pros and cons that I'm looking at are bullish and bearish views.
0: That's interesting. If I could just pick up on that. So basically, you're saying tech stocks you don't think have reached the bottom, even after this massive sell-off?
1: I don't think so. I mean, in the US, it's not a function of... Value or you know where fundamentals are at the moment it's just looking at price action and seeing you know investor psychology behavior because once you've had such a huge run up and people are trying to take chips off the table and things are trying to like crater out I mean look at the price action of where see uh, maybe even exclude Facebook to some extent right mm-hmm. so many of these companies zoom I mean zoom was at five fifty. Yesterday, it closed at 119, right? You're talking about these tens of these decacorns. uh, Grab is close to $5 now. Post announcement, it was like close to 16 or 17, right? So I think there are these huge, massive corrections. And given the current volatility in price action, it does seem like there's still some way to go. Now, if you have deep pockets, uh, patient investors, you know, starting to scale up in some of these names, I think does make sense. But uh, you know, but that's from a little more longer-term perspective, right? Uh, I think that's a different story from uh, Asia tech, where I do feel, or specifically China tech, where I do feel, you know, we're coming closer to the bottom uh, a little bit more so than the U.S. names because this story has like been played out a little bit more in China over the past six months, one year, especially in the back of the government intervening and trying to clamp these guys down, et cetera. But yet very strong fundamental uh, business models for future growth, right? So if I, had to, if I was forced to choose between I have to invest or I really do want some exposure in technology, mm. I would put my money in China right now over the U.S., but always keep a very close eye on what's happening uh, with these large names in the U.S. too, because I do feel... You know, over the next maybe like a month or two, again, not trying to time the market or anything, but uh, over the next couple of months, I would say trying to scale up a lot more in U.S. names would make a lot of sense.
0: Interesting delineation there between uh, Asian tech stocks and U.S. tech stocks. Thanks for that. Uh, in terms of, you know, what investor psychology is leading you to see in terms of people taking risk off the table, uh, when you look at money flowing into safe haven assets, is a narrative collapsing around Bitcoin being better than gold? Uh, you know, which safe haven assets uh, tend to be benefiting, do you think, from this moment of uncertainty?
1: Yeah, it's a tough question, right? Because I think we're in this weird situation right now where we have geopolitical risks, where we have which are extremely heightened from pretty much any time in the past, I don't know, 10, 20 years. I mean, you can exclude the North Korea issues as a little bit more contained, uh, over here, when you have Russia, US, potentially China getting thrown into the fray, much larger geopolitical issues. We have that coupled with really high inflation, which means the Fed increasing interest rates. And increasing interest rates is obviously terrible for fixed income instruments because yield and price move inversely uh, to one another. So we're coming at this situation where. If there was only geopolitical risks, people immediately come out of equities and start pump dumping money into the fixed income market right But over here, when you have increasing interest rates, you kind of can't do that either, which is why you know I think in the month of Jan, the most amount of money was like taken out over the past couple of years from not only fixed income instruments but money market instruments too, because there is a little bit of panic in the market right now mm-hmm. as to where do I put my capital? You know, I kind of had money in Arc or other technology stocks in the U.S. I'm down 40%. Fixed income has done quite poorly over the past couple of months too. And if I look at any inflation reading or, uh, you know, the Fed plot chart, it seems like interest rates are going to be increasing substantially in the future. And I don't know which way to go, right? I'm running from one thing to the other. And then you've got Bitcoin where a lot of, the, uh, you know, yeah gurus or whatever you want to call it in the crypto space was like Bitcoin's the place where you just park your money and you just leave it for the next 10 years, right? But again, it just goes to show the fickle nature of the market where all of that is well and good when the price has been going up, you know, doubling year on year for a number of years and it starts correcting 50, 60%, which it kind of has from its peak uh, to its low in the past, I think since October till, uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago, a lot of this thesis starts getting questioned of being like, okay, wait a minute. If this was supposed to be a 10-year asset, I get it. Mm-hmm. But uh, why isn't everyone else putting oh, a lot more money and buying a lot more Bitcoin if there are so many issues in the equity market and the income markets are correcting? And that's something you know that really uh, you start wondering. Gold, for whatever said and done, and I'm not a big proponent of gold, It still does have like a thousand year track record history of being a true safe haven. Bitcoin, I I think there was some analysis done a couple of days back. I was reading a LinkedIn blog Hmm. about how the price correlation of Bitcoin versus vis-a-vis tech stocks is actually quite high. So there's a big correction in tech there tends to be a big correction in Bitcoin which kind of has mapped out quite well in the past four or five months, right? Like we've seen all these big tech names correct a fair amount. Mm -hmm. Bitcoin's corrected a fair amount. So, you know, I think the jury is still out on how Bitcoin is going to be perceived uh, as a true safe haven. As of now, it definitely doesn't seem to be in that camp. Uh, Luckily for, you know, the Bitcoin uh, bulls, At least the price has been relatively, I mean, relative to Bitcoin uh, historical price uh, volatility, it's been quite stable over the past, like, couple of weeks to a month odd. But, uh, you know, personally, I think there's a big correction in the markets in case, you know, this Russia-US thing does get blown up. I just don't see how Bitcoins can stay at these levels either, to be honest.
0: you got to have the stomach for it, right, for these dives. Bitcoin currently trading down 3% at $36,935. All right, let's turn to Asia-Pacific markets. Of course, depending when you take a snapshot of the markets, the narrative changes. Yesterday, we saw Asian stock markets rebounding after Wall Street slid uh, over anxieties of Putin's authorization to send Russian soldiers into eastern Ukraine. Uh, Shanghai, Hong Kong, South Korea, Australia, all at This morning, we're seeing markets awash of red. So what do you think about Asian stock markets' reaction uh, to the geopolitical crisis? What are you seeing so far?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think the Asian markets never had that kind of crazy rally uh, the way the U.S. markets did, right? If you look even over the past year, couple of years, valuation, price to earnings, forward price to earnings ratios of Asian markets, if anything, was quite depressed, I would say. Uh, and this was largely in part, uh, you know, Hong Kong, especially given uh, on the back of uh, the China government clamping down on tech stocks. India was a little bit of an outlier where valuations are still quite frothy. But if you look at, you know, the ASEAN region specifically, Uh, Singapore equity markets, while, you know, it can be conceived as a little bit more quiet and tame, I would say, relative to uh, the U.S. ones, it's price to earnings based on any, you know, like valuation multiple, they never had this kind of a crazy run-up. So Mm -hmm. on the back of this, you can call it the geopolitical crisis, but I still feel it's a lot more about investor psychology, getting more nervous and then taking chips off the table, Mm -hmm. that never seemed to be that big an issue in Asia, And you couple that with uh, central banks over here. I mean, we saw Korea, we saw uh, MAS, like at home in Singapore, uh, taking the lead in terms of realizing that inflation is the problem, increasing interest rates, and not letting these asset bubbles get created to the extent of what happened in the US. I mean, you know, the balance sheet of central banks over here never expanded to that extent. It might be because of some factor of they couldn't even let that happen because unlike the US dollar being basically the global currency, the Fed has that flexibility. Over over here, you know, be it the Indonesian government or the Philippine government, doesn't have that flexibility. But whatever the reason might be, because of that not happening, I, I don't think we saw that kind of a run up. So things have been relatively more muted. Mm-hmm. And from that perspective, and also when you see global investors uh, are seeing a lot more value uh, over here, right? right. I think uh, Jeremy Grantham from GMO is like, you know, I think Asia equities are going to outperform U.S. equities looking over the next five or ten years, mm. and he's like a core value investor, long-term, long-only equity guy, and he's seeing more pockets of value in Asia because you have the underlying GDP growth, you don't have the overinflated Fed balance sheet, you have interest rates having risen substantially higher from the lows as compared to what we're seeing in the West. So we might see this interesting rotation take place. Again, not to the extent of there being crazy bubbles, Mm because I feel there is still a big uh, hangover from 1998's Asian financial crisis, still weirdly enough, where central banks are really quick to try and clamp down on that. But I do feel that there's a lot more interesting value and segments over here uh, in terms of investors to go along only, rather than going into individual names because of, Again, it is emerging Asia. There are corporate governance issues, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But there are a number of ETFs that have been created by the Rocks and Vanguard, et cetera, of the world to get exposure into, you know, teams of Indonesia, Vietnam, Philippines, et cetera, that investors can take a look at.
0: Yeah, I mean, Vietnam, for example, one of the fastest growing uh, in Southeast Asia in terms of middle class population, a lot of investors, uh, people in hedge funds that I've been speaking with as well, noting inflows uh, into the country, for example. On that point. All right, let's turn our attention to Singapore. The budget in focus, it's all we've been talking about since it was announced on Friday. A staggered increase to GST from 2023. Adjustments to the carbon tax, property tax, income tax. We've uh, been taking apart some of the biggest changes that we've noticed. Singapore maintaining its GDP forecast to 2 to 3% for the year. Uh, One thing to note, MES still considering a further round of monetary policy tightening this April, Uh, wealth tax flagged on a number of occasions, um, but it was not tabled at this year's budget. Of all the announcements made that you heard, Arun, which stood out for you?
1: From the perspective of being glad that there was no wealth tax, I would say (laughs) that in a a weird turn of events. And that's not because it personally affects me in any way, unfortunately, but more from the perspective of given the number of, I, I mean, if you look at big picture-wise of what Singapore is looking to do, right? The VCC aspect, the variable capital company, uh, trying to compete against the Cayman and BVIs of the world, but not in a shady, dodgy manner, but, you know, let's bring that wealth out in the open and let's properly tax it or at least monitor it. I think Singapore has been at the forefront of that. A lot more so, I mean, leaving on Cayman BVI, but even more so than like, Switzerland, or London, or the Middle East, etc. So from that aspect, and it's, it's borne a lot of dividends, right, where you have a lot of family offices, all these like multi-billionaire tech guys setting up their family offices over here, there's going to be huge trickle-down effect from the initial lawyers, corpsex et etc. being set up, lawyers, etc., all the way down to eventually where do they start investing money. And I would like to think With this SPACs of SGX coming along, the equity markets over here will become a lot more vibrant. All the unicorns, startup companies around the ASEAN region will look at Singapore versus Hong Kong, set up more headquarters over here, all of that good stuff, right? That flywheel starts moving. So from that aspect, I think putting a tax right now would have been quite prohibitive. I mean, I, I look at Singapore as a very efficiently run Startup slash corporation, right? Where on an annual basis, you always want the budget to be somewhat matched. Uh, sure, given the COVID pandemic, there was a deficit of like 50 billion in 2020, 10, 11 billion in 2021, A little bit of a surprise deficit of maybe a three or $4 billion uh, last year, but let's see what the numbers finally eventually come out to be, right? But And hence they had to increase taxes, tax the rich and try and help and support as many households as possible uh, on the lower economic strata of society. So from all those aspects, I think it was, uh, you know, very uh, expected budget to a very large extent. Uh, I think there were no shocking aspects of it. I'm just very glad that there was no shock in terms of the wealth tax, because that could have uh, hastened money flowing into the Middle East, which sadly, has been happening to some extent given the COVID flexibility that the Middle East is showing over Singapore. Mm. But, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of things that Singapore has to be very proud of and why people are still going to be attracted over here. Uh, The wealth tax being put in right now is not one of those in five years time. uh, By all means, right. Let, let it be a little bit higher. Let, let people move here, get more comfortable with the jurisdiction of this place, the stability, the political stability, the economic stability, and all of these other good factors, uh, and then start increasing interest rates, uh, starting increasing tax rates, sorry, I think that's completely fair and kosher. And people will be okay with that. I mean, income taxes above, I think, like 500K, uh, another slab got created of like 23%. Yep. Uh, still a little bit on the low side, I would say, uh, to be honest. I think taxes to some extent uh, could be increased even further, especially for the higher-end properties. Because that's what these guys are facing in London, New York uh, to a much larger extent, right? So, mm-hmm. slowly but steadily, I think that will keep happening. Uh, but at the same time, the government is very cognizant that being in a city state, it has to support uh, the lower end of the society a lot more. Because, unlike in the US or the UK, you can't just move to the suburbs that's cheaper, right? You still have to face this inflation. And I think it was a very balanced and uh, fantastic budget overall.
0: Really measured insight there. Thank you, as always, Arun Pai, Chief Strategy Officer at Flow. Before acting on the information on MoneyFM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at MoneyFM893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.